0: thanks for the intro. All right, our first Bible reading today is from Romans 5, 12 to 17. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift come by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the man's sin, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, Jesus Christ? And our second reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive.
1: I've got a third Bible reading for you this morning. You'll see why I thought it was a bit cool to ask Dan to do this one. I'm going to read to you from Luke. Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon. The son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shautil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Menon, the son of Mattathar, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eva, the son of Sheleah, the son of Kinan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Not the most common passage to read at this time of year, but both Gospels, or both Gospel writers in the New Testament who tell the story of the Nativity, the story of the coming into the world of Jesus Christ, don't start with a manger, and an angel, and some shepherds, and some wise men, the picture that we are used to seeing. The New Testament opens with a genealogy, with the list of names, (laughs) the stories of the people from whom Jesus is descended. Now, we don't often read those uh, passages in Luke 3 and in Matthew chapter 1 because they're a little bit boring. Uh, They're a little bit unfamiliar, some of those names are a little bit hard to pronounce and I'm pretty sure I got some of them wrong, but my theory, if you're ever asked to read one of these Bible passages, just say it confidently and everyone afterwards will say, oh, that's how it's said. Yes, yes, exactly, that is how it's said. But they start with these genealogies that put Jesus in this line of descent, in a family line and connect him to all that has come before. And there's something really significant about the choice of Matthew and of Luke to tell the story of Jesus this way. To put Jesus in connection to the story that has been happening through the ages, through the pages of the Old Testament. You see, Matthew's gospel in particular in chapter 1 is really concerned to tell us that this is not a new story. The story of Jesus is not a brand new story. It is the same story that God has been weaving through the years and the generations and the millennia past. God, who has been at work since the beginning of creation, continues to work his story, to fulfill his promises, to reveal his character, to make himself known and to fulfill his purposes for his creation for humanity. As most of you know, I I teach Old Testament and one of the things I love about the Old Testament is the stories. They're messy and they're real and they're raw, but they're very grounded and concrete. The stories of the Old Testament are the stories of real people who lived in real places and real times and had real relationships that were complicated and they're not often tied up in a nice, neat bow. And they show us how God is at work through the ordinary, everyday, messy, complicated lives of people just like you and me. But the thing about the Old Testament is, as well as all these amazing stories, you can kind of stand back and get a glimpse of the Old Testament as one big story from beginning to end. And the story of the Old Testament from beginning to end is a story of a God who has a plan and a purpose and who is on about a promise that he has made to fulfill for his good creation. And each story plays its part and kind of sits together in, I guess you'd say, like a tapestry that is woven together that progresses that story forward. What I think happens is if you stand back and you look at the Old Testament as a whole, what that story does is leave you with a big question mark. Or sometimes I say it's like there's this big arrow that is pointing forwards, Because while each of the individual stories of the Old Testament tell us of a God who is engaged and involved with his people, there is a sense of incompleteness, of unfinished business, of promises that have not been fully fulfilled, of hopes and expectations that have been dashed and that are left hanging. You can't get to the old end of the Old Testament and think, tied up in a nice neat bow, what a great story, here it is on a silver plate. It leaves you wanting something more. And so when the writers of the New Testament come along and start the story of Jesus, with the genealogies, what they are doing is reminding their hearers of all of those stories. If you've been reading your Old Testament, then those genealogy should be sending off bells and light bulbs in your mind. Oh, Noah, I've heard of him. He's the guy with the the boat and the animals. Abraham, I've heard of him. He's the one who left his home and his family because God asked him to. David, wasn't he a king? And those stories start to come to life and you realize that all those hopes and expectations and questions and longings and wonderings that all those stories have left, all the loose threads that have been hanging, Matthew and Luke are saying they all come together right here and right now in this moment, in this man, in this baby, in Jesus Christ. There is this incredible sense that the genealogies teach us that Jesus is the one in whom all of God's promises All of the people of God's hopes and expectations find their full fulfillment. And so as part of our Advent series this year, I'm just going to do this. Um, For our Advent series this year, we thought we would take a look at these genealogies and some of the stories and how Jesus fulfills these stories of the Old Testament. Now don't worry, we're not going to look at all the names that I just read to you because that would be a very long series and we would be here for a very long time. We're just going to highlight some of the key figures and see now a wonderful artwork that Tori and uh, Sophie put together for us. We're going to look at Jesus as the son of Adam, as the son of Abraham, as the son of David, and as the son of Joseph. Uh, and we've actually already got 2020's Advent series planned because there's also four wonderful women who are named in Matthew's genealogy, so we're going to look at them next year. Um, a couple of them got to run earlier this year, so we'll give them a go again next year. So um, these, these great figures from the Old Testament who have their own stories and represent kind of the hopes and expectations of their time how do they point forward to the coming of Jesus and what does it mean for us not just to understand with our minds that Jesus is the son of all these great figures from the past but how does that shape how we respond to Jesus and how we live in and out of this same story that finds its fulfillment in him. So Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. That's why it takes a very long time to read that passage that I read to you. But Paul also makes clear in his letters in a couple of places that Dan read to us and some others that there is this connection between Jesus and Adam, the first man, the first man that God created and the new man, if you like, in Jesus Christ. What are those connections and what difference does it make for us that Jesus is the son of Adam. Well, Jesus is the son of Adam, genealogically speaking. That's a bit of a tautology or a, a truism or a, you know, a, a moot point, uh, something that's almost not worth commenting on for the Jewish people because everybody's the son of Adam. Like, that's kind of how the story works. Adam is the first man created by God and all of the family lines flow through him. So genealogically speaking, it's just a simple truth. Theologically speaking, it is one of the most profound facts of the Christmas story. It's one of the most complicated and amazing truths of what God has done. One of the most profound statements we could ever make. That Jesus is a son of Adam. That Jesus Christ, King of the universe, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, existed for all time, one with the Father and the Spirit, is A son of Adam is a human being, is one of us. We call it the incarnation, this incredible truth that God has become a human being. It is a profound and unique claim of the Christian story that we have a God who has chosen to enter into our world and become one of us. Emmanuel, the angels declare at Christmas time, which means God with us, God in our midst, God one of us. I don't know how often you think about this: that Jesus is an actual human being. He is born as a baby. The Creator of the universe finds himself in a human body, like that little baby up the back that we have there, Grace, who's just a few weeks old, can't speak, or Elio over there, can't make his needs and his wishes known can only cry and scream and hope that his parents figure out what on earth that cry means. And then he has to learn to walk and learn to talk and he has to grow and figure out his place in the world. He gets tired and he gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He experiences pain. He weeps he bleeds. He is a full human being just like you and me. Sometimes people can talk about Jesus I wonder in ways that make it seem like he is other than us. And there's truth to that. This is the incredible paradox of the story. But, But Jesus is not someone who is purely spiritual or disembodied. He is a true human being just like you and me. And he is human forever. He takes on our humanity and becomes a son of Adam, one of us. And that is who he is and will be forevermore. So what does it mean? What does it mean to have a God who is one of us, to have Jesus who is the son of Adam? I think the first thing that the New Testament writers want us to understand is that if Jesus is human just like us, he knows what it's like. He gets it. He understands. We do not have a saviour, the writer to Hebrews says, who can't relate to us, whatever we are going through. In our own sufferings, in our own mundane, ordinary lives, in the challenges and difficult parts of being human, God understands. God gets it because God got it. God took it on Himself. Our suffering, our brokenness, our groaning for more, He entered into the reality of that. He understands what it means to be human. And He understands that being human means being limited and experiencing brokenness, experiencing pain, experiencing suffering. One of the things I think that's really been brought home to me, particularly this year amongst our church community, is that we are all carrying stuff. We are all carrying pain and grief and brokenness and struggle and difficulty and questions. None of us is immune from the reality of human life. Sometimes we can speak as if everybody else's life is going well and when I'm experiencing brokenness and suffering, that's the abnormal situation. But it's actually the other way around. Normal human life involves pain and suffering and grief and struggle and question and doubt. And Jesus understands that because he entered into it and walked that journey with us. One of the things that we are doing this Christmas, which we did for the first time last year, is having a Blue Christmas service. Um, And the reason for Blue Christmas is essentially naming that and saying, particularly at this kind of year when there's a lot of hype and a lot of sparkle and a lot of wonderful things happening, time for family and celebration and giving gifts, it's actually really hard for many of us. Christmas, with all its joy, comes tinged with grief and sadness for many. If you are have, missing someone that you have lost, if there are broken relationships and conflict in your family, even if you've got the best family in the world, they just might annoy you when you spend that many hours together on one day with all the expectations that come alongside it. Or if you are experiencing um, the lack of what you had hoped for in your life, if you are sick and feeling the effects of brokenness and suffering in your own body, then Blue Christmas Service is really just a space where we name that and we acknowledge that and we invite people to sit in that and let Jesus meet them there. So if that's you, very welcome to come along or if you know people for whom this time of year is particularly hard, please let them know and invite them along to that service. But whether you come to that or not, the reminder of the Christmas story is that Jesus understands the reality and the frailty of what it means to be human. But I think I want to go one step further than that. Not just that Jesus understands. The fact that Jesus is the son of Adam says to me that God embraces our humanity. God doesn't just understand how humanity. He actually embraces it or even could I say he validates it. By God becoming a human, becoming a son of Adam, he is saying that being human is a wonderful, beautiful thing. The goal of the Christian story is not to escape our humanity, but to become fully human, just as God became fully human. You know, there are many stories throughout history, throughout the ages, and throughout the world of human beings trying to become gods. It's been one of the goals since the dawn of time, it seems, that human beings would strive to become gods, that we want to escape our humanity. Our embodiment, the mundane, ordinary reality of what it means to be a son of Adam, to be a human being. And the Christian story is a story and a truth of a God who says, No, the goal is not for you to escape your humanity and become gods, but God will become human with you. And in doing so, actually affirms and embraces and validates your humanity. One of the things that I love about this time of year, I know there's a bit of polarization certainly in our pastoral team about Christmas and particularly Christmas carols. What I love about Christmas carols is that they contain some of the most profound theological truths you will ever hear sung and you can go at this time of year to a supermarket and hear the greatest theological truths being played over the PA system. How amazing is that? Well, you can turn on your television at Christmas Eve and see thousands of Australians who probably would never enter a church in their lives singing and speaking out the most profound truths about who our God is. One of my favourite carols, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because there is this line, this passage in there. I just want you to hear these words again, because then you're going to hear them you know, playing on the radio or in the supermarket or sing them at a carol's night. I want you to think about what they really say. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead sees, Hail, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's like mind-blowing stuff, yes? Veiled in flesh, in a human body, just looking like you and me, an ordinary, average, we're told, no, no special, not particularly attractive, nothing to you know, mark him out as different to anyone it's Veiled in flesh in an ordinary human being we have the Godhead. The creator of the universe. The eternal one. Walking around veiled in human flesh. Hail we're told, the incarnate deity. God made human. Jesus, the son of Adam. And then that beautiful line, even though it's a little bit sexist, pleased as man with men to dwell. This isn't something that God did under sufferance, that God said, I guess if it's the only way, I'll take it on. God is pleased to have all the fullness of the Godhead dwell in human form, the Bible says, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus was delighted to become one of us. What does that say about our humanity? That God was delighted to partake of it. Jesus, our Emmanuel. To be human, to be part of humanity, to recognise the common humanity that we share in one another and to know that we have a God who shares in that too. It shows us that our humanity matters, that our bodies matter, that our lives matter, that the ordinariness of human life is not something to seek to transcend. But if God has embraced it, then surely we can embrace it too. What does it mean for you to embrace your humanity? Now, I think I have to be a little bit theologically careful here. We need to go back to the story of Adam. Jesus the son of Adam, the story of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the garden where God creates humanity good, very good in fact. God looks upon humanity and says it is very good. There is nothing inherently wrong with being human. The problem is in Genesis 3 that sin enters the world and mars that good creation that God has made. But the problem is not humanity itself. So we need to deal with the sin problem and we'll come to that in a minute. But the goal is not escape from humanity, the redemption, it is the redemption of humanity or the restoration of humanity to the, its original goodness as God created it to be. So what does that mean for us, that God embraces our humanity and we can embrace our humanity too? I think for me personally, in the last few years, it's been partly about embracing being an embodied being. I think growing up in Western culture today, particularly with the personality and the uh, gifts and bents that I have, I can sometimes live as though my life exists mostly in here. I can live in my head and kind of forget that I actually have this thing called a body and that being human involves living in an embodied way. Uh, And it's been great over the last few years, we've looked at this in some of our psalm series, to look at how our bodies are a part of the story, um, that the story of God into the future includes embodied resurrection that who we are with all our humanity is a part of how God has embraced us to be. Um, one of the things, well, like, oh, I don't know if I want to tell this story or not, but I'll just put it out there and then I'm like, you know, then I have to keep it up. If I tell you something publicly, you know, that I say that I'm doing, then I have to keep doing it. It's always, it's always scary. Um, one of the things I've been doing this year is going, getting back into swimming. So I learned to swim as a kid, um, you know, like all, most Australian kids had swimming lessons, but I wasn't that, at that point where I could just go and swim laps. So I went and had swimming lessons basically like you know, to get back to a point where I could just go and swim and got to the point now where I can just go and swim some laps. And I just did it because you know, it's good exercise and I had um, you know, some uh, car accident and you know, it was good rehab and all that kind of stuff. But I found it actually really profound. And I've been really theologically reflecting on why is it that I love it so much. And there's a couple of reasons. I'll be honest with you. When I go swimming, it's probably the one time in, the lo- in my week where I have to turn my brain off because literally I can think of nothing else other than where is my next breath coming from? <laughs> it's, you know, you're just like the whole, your whole body is consumed with when do I get to breathe? <laughs> so I cannot be thinking about what I've got on my to-do list and you know, what those big questions are in my sermon for next week. I'm purely focused on the moment of being in the water right now. But it's more than that. There's something about embracing the limitations and also the abilities of my body talking to a friend this week who's been having dancing lessons and actually having some of the same kind of you know making those same connections going why is it that I've been loving that so much there's actually something about kind of embracing what my body can do and what other people's bodies can do and the human connection something about embracing our human groundedness that we as a culture and as a society and certainly in the church have sort of let drift a little bit and we're so focused on here and maybe on here, on what we feel and on what we think. But God embraces all of our humanity. And so I just want to encourage you to think about what does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to embrace your grounded, embodied humanity? It also means if God embraces our humanity, then that we can meet and embrace God within the humanity of one another. Let me say that again. If God has embraced our humanity, it means that you and I can meet and embrace God within the humanity of one another. I think this is something that Jesus is trying to get at when he tells his parable in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats. And he says to these people who thought they knew him because they had it all figured out and they could tell the stories of Jesus and they could talk about him and teach about him and kind of you know, intellectualize about Jesus all day long. And he says, I was sick and you didn't care for me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was in prison and you didn't come and visit me. And they're like, when did we see you, Jesus? You were never in prison. You were never sick. You were never hungry. What are you talking about? And he says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these people, these creations, these human beings of mine, you didn't do it for me. When we see another person, whether it is your spouse or your child that you live with every day, or whether it's the person on the street who is desperate, that you've never met before. You have the opportunity to embrace God by embracing their humanity. Now again, I feel like I want to be theologically careful here because we're trying not to get into this pantheism or suggesting that people are gods. That's not what I'm saying. But Jesus says that human beings can be embraced by God and therefore God can be made known in and through them. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, you have never met a mere mortal. You have never met a mere mortal. Every person is created in the image of God. Very good. And God has embraced their humanity. What does it look like for you to embrace the humanity of the people in your world and the people whose paths you cross? I think it says to us that all, all from the youngest to the oldest, from the most powerful to the least significant in the eyes of our world. All are important. No one, no human being is outside of the scope of what God is doing in Jesus. And the invitation to us is to embrace and enter into that. A couple of things to finish off. Paul takes the story of Jesus as the son of Adam in a number of different directions. And I just want to finish by focusing on two, because what Paul does in his letters in Romans and Corinthians if he tells the story of Jesus his life his death and his resurrection through this lens of Jesus being the son of adam what does it mean that Jesus is a human being when it comes to the story of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus well it means that Jesus can take our place that he can be our representative and our substitute because he is one of us we can have confidence that Jesus' death on the cross is my death and can be your death because he is one of us. Paul links Jesus as the son of Adam, (laughs) the sin of Adam, therefore the forgiveness that is obtained in Jesus. He says, in Adam all die, but in Jesus all can live because Jesus is the son of Adam. The Easter story is not possible without the Christmas story. not just because they're two good things to celebrate during the year, but the death of Jesus on the cross to purchase redemption for all humanity can only happen because he was born as a human being amongst us. In Adam all sinned; in Jesus all can be forgiven. But it doesn't end there. It's not just Jesus' death as the son of Adam that is for us and for humanity, but in his resurrection, he is raised to new life, to true life, as the true human. And so Jesus invites us to enter into, in his resurrection, true humanity. Not since Adam, Paul says, has anyone experienced true humanity. Remember I said before, humanity created good, broken and marred by sin. And Paul says everyone from Adam on has lived a subset of true humanity, if you like. Yes, we've lived a human life, but we haven't fully lived human life because it has been tainted and marred by sin. But in Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is raised to true humanity. Not just exalted to true kingship as God, there's that too, we'll talk about that another day. But Jesus is raised to true humanity and he opens the way for us to be resurrected with him. I not only die with Christ but I am raised with him to new life and that new life is true Humanity. Again, this is it, 1 Corinthians Paul uses this analogy in a number of different ways. There's so much going on with Jesus as the Son of Adam. But just as Adam was the first human, he says, so Jesus is the first new human, the first true human. And this matters. Not because Jesus is divine and therefore of a different to us, but because he shares our common humanity, we too can share in his resurrection. I love the fact that in Jesus' resurrection, he still has his body. He still has his scars. He is still who he is. Being resurrected with Jesus doesn't mean that you will lose those things about yourself that you might not love. (laughs) You don't suddenly lose the body that you've got. But it is transformed to what it was always created to be. And you get to embrace your true and full humanity in relationship with God. Jesus' resurrection is our confidence that what we long for, to be truly who God has created to be, to be truly ourselves in the fullness of all we are as human beings, not transcended, but fulfilled, and we will finally be all that we were created to be. Jesus, as the son of Adam, fulfills all the hopes and dreams and expectations of Adam's story if you like Jesus fulfills the creation story sometimes when it comes to Christmas people talk about you know Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and we can see that in in a helpful but maybe limited way we're like well here's a particular verse in the Old Testament which makes a prediction about how the Messiah will come and Jesus ticks that box so he has fulfilled that prediction tick he was born in Bethlehem tick he rode on a donkey tick you know he was born of a virgin But what Paul is trying to say in these letters here is something so much bigger, so much more expansive. Jesus just doesn't tick the boxes of what God has promised. Jesus is embodying the fulfillment of the entire story of God and opening that up to us. We could actually go through every passage in the Old Testament, the story of Adam and the story of Seth and the story of Enoch and the story of Methuselah, and you could see that Jesus fulfills them all. He fills them full. But Jesus, as the son of Adam, fills the creation story and shows us what being created as a human being was always intended to look like and invites us into that experience for ourselves. So I guess I asked you a couple of questions along the way, a couple of challenges I'd love you to keep sitting with. What does it mean for you this week to embrace your own humanity, who God has called you to be, and know that God embraces your humanity, who you are just as you are, what does it mean for you to embrace the humanity of the people around you just as God has embraced their humanity and to meet Jesus as you meet and care for and love and reconcile those around you? But most of all, what does it look like this Christmas to worship Jesus as the one who is Emmanuel, God with us, veiled in flesh, the Godhead Sea? How do we respond to the call to live this out and to worship him for the breadth and the depth of who he is? Let me pray. Father God, King Jesus, empowering Holy Spirit, the Godhead three in one, we are so grateful that you were pleased to dwell amongst us as a fellow human being that you now forevermore share our common humanity. You have embraced us fully as human beings. I pray that you would show us what it means for us to accept that, to accept that incredible love and compassion and relationship that you offer by becoming one of us and to then live it out in a way where we might embrace who you have created us to be And particularly those around us, that we might embrace them as human beings honoured, embraced and validated by you. King Jesus, we thank you that you fulfil the entire story of the Old Testament. Every promise, every hope, every longing, every expectation meets together in the person of you. And you fill them all full and we honour you and we worship you for who you are. In Jesus' name.